I'm your host, Kimberly Bailey, and I'm here with my other amazing co-host, Erin Callahan. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Can't wait to get it started. Yeah, and today we actually have a very special guest. Um, her name is Lindsay, and we cannot wait for you to hear our topic for today. Um, it was really led by our previous discussion about our stories. And, you know, if you listen to the previous episodes of both mine and Erin's story, you'll know that we do have a lot of, you know, military sexual trauma and also some, you know, military spouse related issues. And I feel like we didn't leave you with some really good resources if that were to happen to you. So that's why we wanted to bring on an expert to kind of discuss that and share some really good resources and just more background information on that so that we are more informed and that we have a better understanding of, you know, how we can help others and also how we can help ourselves in that situation. But first, of course, we have our R&R, which is rest and recuperation. And Lindsay is going to be sharing her self-care tips today with all of us. So go ahead, Lindsay. Hooray. So hello, everyone. Um, real quick, my name is Lindsay Knapp. I am an attorney from uh, North Carolina. I'm also the executive director of um, an organization called Combat Sexual Assault. I am an Army veteran. I got out of service in 2008. And what I would like to do with you is to begin by sharing with you my uh, kit bag for self-care. So uh, the thing that my, my go-to is, is meditation and really digging into myself. So I know right now, especially for a lot of us, may be quarantined at the moment. And um, this is, cause, this is a, creating a beautiful um, opportunity to meditate. And a lot of us are may, maybe having, a lot of things are bubbling to the surface and sitting with those a lot of us may not be used to sitting with those um, feelings and emotions that we're having because we may be very busy during our normal daily lives and the slowdown is maybe causing us a bit of distress. So one of the things I like to recommend to folks is to really uh, lean in to that distress and not to run from it because part of the, the beauty of the work is that you've got to actually feel worse before you get better. A lot of us tend to maybe beat ourselves up when we're feeling bad, thinking that maybe, oh, we, I shouldn't feel bad. I should be happy. I should just be happy. I should feel this way. I should feel that way. But really, if you're feeling bad, I would recommend try to feel worse. Once you've cried all you can or dug in as deep as you can, you will make it to the other side. I like that phrase, you know, um, maybe you can say that one more time. If you're feeling bad, try to feel worse. Is that what you said? Try, yeah, try to, try to feel worse. Yeah. Um, and it's not wrong to feel bad. Um, I think a lot of us are, are scared and think that we need to have this face on that we are happy and, and we're okay. But it's, it's okay to not be okay. And it's actually great to not be okay because going through that, well, that is the only way to get to the other side. It's the only way. Absolutely. I was going to say, I'm glad that you threw that in at the end, that it's okay to not be okay. And I think that's such a, like, for most people, they feel like that's a cliche topic. Like, oh, everybody says it's okay not to be okay. But no, really, even if you're the strong one, even if you're the advocate, even if you are the most resilient person that you know, it's still okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. In therapy, um, we see this as a strategic technique, a strategic intervention of therapy where it's like if you're feeling anxious or if you're feeling upset, um, rather than trying to stop that feeling by encouraging that feeling, you're actually exerting control over that feeling by making it worse. And then you're reminded, oh yeah, I actually do have some control over this feeling. So it, it kind of like works against itself, but reminds you that, oh yeah, I actually am still connected to this feeling. And if I could make it worse, then I could also allow it just to be or eventually make it better. And so, yeah, I, I know it might sound counterintuitive, but I 100%, I love that tip. That's great, R&R, &R. thank you. 
So going forward, we had talked about in the last episode with Erin, we spoke about her experience with, you know, her husband being in the Air Force. And in case you didn't catch that episode, go back. What was that? I said ex-husband. Yes, her ex-husband. Let me make sure that we we reiterate that it's an ex. Um, She's no longer married to this person. But he did have a situation where he was arrested um, in the service. And the reason why I felt really compelled to have Lindsay on the show is because Aaron and I had connected um, based on the fact that I had a similar situation. Um, I didn't share this in my part of the story, but, and I'm going to briefly just kind of talk about it just for a second, just because this is the reason why I invited Lindsay on the show. Um, my situation was similar in the fact that I was married to somebody who was um, in this, when I was in the service or when I got out of the service, the person was army and he allegedly, I'm not going to talk too much about his situation, but he allegedly um, committed a sexual assault on an individual. So considered military sexual trauma. So me being a survivor of military sexual trauma, and then now I'm married to a potential perpetrator of sexual trauma. A lot of feelings came up in this situation, but the way that the military handled it was pretty much to not give me any resources. The command at the time decided to um, not give me any apportionment of the money. So the money that was forfeited when he got in trouble, I wasn't able to have any of that money for me and my children. And they pretty much told me, here's a ticket to get off of our base. And um, that was it. And that's kind of what propelled me into being homeless and into the situation that you heard about when you heard about my story. It's almost like we are as guilty as they are, even though we were completely victims in the situation, or at least that's exactly that. Yeah. It felt like a, like, like a shaming, like a victim shaming again, all over again. So it kind of brought up all those traumatic experiences for me, but it made me think, okay, so what resources are available for military spouses? And I was looking and I didn't find much, couldn't find a lot of information. So that's what led me to Lindsay. And um, of course, Lindsay has a wealth of information when it comes to this topic and a lot of topics related to military sexual trauma. So um, I don't know if you wanted to jump in and share anything along those lines, Lindsay. Yeah, absolutely. After I heard uh, your story and then um, just learning about your story um, now, Erin, there are definitely some resources that are in place now to help folks that are in your situation. And they certainly weren't available for you guys when when you were in. And the resources resources that are available now, I would still consider them kind of a work in progress. So they're not necessarily perfect and they don't always work all of the time. But what I'm going to do is kind of just give a framework of those resources and then some advice to like our listeners on what to do when those resources maybe don't work. So the first place I'd want to send somebody is to uh, the DOD Safe Helpline. This is a, it is a hotline and also a website. You can go online and chat. And if you have been experienced any kind of sexual assault or domestic violence in the military anywhere in the world, you can get onto this website and chat with somebody live 24-7 or call that hotline. And this um, hotline is completely anonymous and it's free. So and what they will do is you can tell them about your situation without having to disclose who you are or where you are. And they will kind of let you know what your options are, which is great because they're particularly like with that domestic violence, there are certain things that if you report, it will automatically trigger an investigation. And so then you, you will lose your anonymity and it also, it, it could increase risk to yourself, right? As, as maybe you're trying to develop a safety plan and trying to leave. If you disclose that there may be some abuse to a, a, to a child, that's going to get immediately reported. So you won't have, or maybe your child's life at risk, right? So, so those are some things that you may be thinking about as you're building your exit plan, or even if you're just starting to consider an exit strategy. So that's where I'd send folks first is to that hotline and then just have them tell their whole stories. But in, in a case like your, in, in, with your, your guys is where you guys were married to somebody who committed or who had allegedly uh, committed an act of violence against somebody else, whatever it may be. There's a, there's a program in the military right now called family advocacy uh, program. And what they do is they've got um, domestic violence advocates and folks that they will actually assign to uh, service members and dependent spouses in the event that something like this happens. And what that person is supposed to do is kind of guide you through the process. This person is going to be a, a trained social worker and, um, and, and is really supposed to be top of the line and know exactly what they're doing. 
one of the ways they are trying to they try to encourage people to report is by um, offering what they call transitional compensation to these military spouses. So one reason why somebody may not report is because they may be worried about maybe losing their TRICARE benefits. Maybe they have got a child that is enrolled in like the EFMP program, which is the exceptional family member program. They may have a child with special needs. They may have health needs of their own. They may not have a job. They may, you know, because the military spouse is, is naturally traveling around the country with their spouse. So they're not always able to find employment at their installation. So they may not be able to financially leave. So the idea behind the transitional compensation program is to, is to provide um, income to that military spouse while they may be separating their partner from the military. So, so let's just say in this instance, male service member is accused of some kind of crime while and is being prosecuted, potentially um, chaptered out of the military. We, we would link you up with family advocacy and family advocacy would apply for this transitional compensation and then they would pay you X amount based off of the number of dependents that you have. So if you have maybe five dependents, if you've got like five kids, they're going to increase that amount to you based on how many dependents you have. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was just thinking um, in my case, and we might circle back around to this, but in my case, they were in such a hurry to get him out of the military that once he was other than honorably discharged from the military for, uh, well, not for, I don't know what the particular reason was that was documented, but he hadn't been charged with having child pornography at that time. So they just said, okay, you're other than honorably discharged and he was out and then I was cut off. Like I, I didn't have any resources to a JAG officer. I didn't have any uh, family advocacy, didn't want to talk to me anymore. Like once he was out, I was out and we was like, we were the same person. So right. um, it's, it's encouraging to know that these programs do exist but also it sounds like timing is of the essence in that situation. It's like you almost like need to know that before you need to prepare yourself before uh, shit hits the fan in order to be able to access those things in a timely manner. And you're absolutely right. The command is, so now, now the command is required to let you know that those resources are available to you. They certainly weren't required then. And those, and to be fair, these resources may not have existed then and even now, um, I'm sure I'm I'm quite certain there's a listener that's that is that is listening now that says, "No, the family advocacy turned me away outright because I because I get complaints of that even even now, right? Mm -hmm. That um, even some of these programs that are that are put in place to prevent that from occurring, sometimes you find that not everybody's executing the program the way it was intended, right? And so then you still have folks that are struggling and having to fight for themselves, which is essentially why I created the nonprofit organization that I created, which is Combat Sexual Assault. That's my organization is the organization folks go to when the system is not working and when you, you have bad actors and maybe family advocacy is not doing what they're supposed to be doing or um, the command is retaliating against the victim or the command is uh, kicking the victim out of the military as a result of them reporting uh, and, and things like that. Yeah, and I, I honestly, the, like to throw that on there, I know like when we talk about military spouses, um, that was my concern, you know, with the with both of me and Aaron's situation that we were kind of thrown out there. And for me, I, I was really concerned that the command at that time, I know you and I had talk, I've talked about this, Lindsay, that the command had so much power to make that determination for my future. They literally cited within the paperwork that the egregiousness of his charges did not allow me and my children to have benefits. And it was a demand, it was a command um, decision and a command order that we were to not have those like available resources to us, which I thought was really interesting that they even had that power. I mean, is that, has that, and that's not uncalled for though. I mean, not, not uncalled, that's not unheard of though, right? Right, no, it's, you're right, it's not unheard of. And it's insane, right? Because they're, they're essentially blaming you for something you, had, you didn't even do, right? They're like, well, you're associated with this person, so it must be your fault. But to be fair, the command is associated with this person, so it should, so it's just as much their fault, right? Like if we're gonna be throwing stones like that. But the command does have quite a bit of power, right? I'm not sure that they've got, I'm not really f familiar with the apportionment and how that all that worked back in the early 2000s, but certainly the, the command 
I mean, the command has got decides now whether or not they're going to prosecute, right? So, which is different than the civilian side. So just to give folks an idea of how the military prosecutes their crime. So a law enforcement agency such as like, like if you're in the army, it'll be CID. If you're in the Air Force, it'll be like OSI. Everybody's seen, maybe seen NCIS. So it's that same type of idea where they're going to send folks in and investigate the crime the same way maybe a civilian jurisdiction would do so. But after the military jurisdiction investigates the crime, they're going to compile all their evidence and they're going to send it to the command where the command is going to decide whether or not they prefer charges. On the civilian side, law enforcement is going to compile their evidence and they're going to send it to the district attorney to decide. And the district attorney is going to decide whether or not they're going to prefer charges, right? Whether or not there's enough evidence here to go forward. So the, the difference between a commander and a district attorney is that the district attorney is an attorney, right? And the commander is not. Now the commander is certainly being advised by attorneys, but it's the, it, it's at the end of the day, it's the commander's decision whether or not charges are going to go forward. And so the military has had a lot of problems with that because if, if it's one of their buddies, they may not be preferring charges, right? So the Department of Defense has put in some additional rules and regulations to where like if the uh, JAG officer is preferring, is recommending that it go to court martial and the commander is not, then that automatically elevates the case, you know, to a higher echelon, like it, perhaps all the way up to DOD. So, so that is better, right? And that provides an additional level of oversight. But I mean, if you're asking me, I, it's still, there's still a lot of opportunity for commanders to, to gauge the system. Yeah. And I mean, and when you're speaking right now, it really reminds me of just military sexual trauma cases, even outside of like the military spouses, right? And I know I can speak on my situation and some of the sister veterans that I speak to about this, this situation. And my, you know, my situation happened in 2006. So that was pretty, pretty far away, you know, in the grand scheme of things, because a lot of resources have been put in place now for military sexual trauma survivors. But even with the confidentiality factor, the second that I had reported, and it was kind of a forced report, if anybody heard my story from previously, or if you didn't hear it, the only reason why I reported was because I ended up getting pregnant at the at the time. And um, what we know about military in general, when it comes to health-related stuff, HIPAA protections aren't necessarily in place for pregnancies and even some mental health appointments um, for service members just because of that deployment readiness and the, that military readiness. So the command would have found out I was pregnant, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and that confidentiality factor, everybody on the whole base, it felt like, or at least in my unit, all knew about my case. Even though it was supposed to be a confidential matter, I'd only shared this information with, you know, the investigating officers and maybe my command and maybe my supervisor. I'm thinking maybe the other individual probably told people is what I'm thinking. But even so, it's like everybody found out about it. So that confidentiality factor for both situations. And then even when I was a military spouse, literally everybody, all the housing, I feel like everybody on the base found out about this situation. Um, so confidentiality is kind of null and void, it feels like, because everybody knew about it. Yeah, no, you're right. That happens. That happens well, that happens a lot. I mean, even even now, right? So it's not it's not supposed to happen that way. The idea is that so so if that happened to somebody to one of our listeners today, right, and they've been assaulted or whether well, in a domestic violence or sexual assault or what have you, what I would encourage them to do is reach out and to get a victim advocate, and they can call the DoD self safe helpline to do that. What they'll do is they can get an advocate who is either in the military, like a military victim advocate, or a civilian victim advocate. They can get somebody at their location. So. I'm down by Fort Bragg. North Carolina Fort Bragg is, you know, the largest military installation in the world. We've got 55,000 soldiers on Fort Bragg and we've literally got hundreds of victim advocates. And we've got a sizable population of civilian, um, like federal GS employees that work there. And those are really, in, in my opinion, kind of the cream of the crop. Not that the active duty victim advocates aren't great, but they, they tend to rotate with a great deal of frequency, right? Like they're PCSing, they're getting promoted, um, they may be being a victim advocate as an additional duty, whereas the civilians, they're they are doing this as their job. But in addition to that, there's also the Rape Crisis Center here near Fort Bragg that serves not only Fort Bragg, but the city of Fayetteville and the surrounding counties. So we, re we refer a lot of people to the local Rape Crisis Center, right? Just the straight civilian folks 
particularly if somebody has got some apprehension about hand, dealing with the military. And you can even call the DOD Safe Helpline to get a referral to one of those, to, to, the, to your local right crisis center. And so that's what I would suggest to somebody who's got any kind of apprehension out the gate, right? Because what this person's going to do is they're going to they're be your advocate. They're going to answer all of your questions. Because there's a lot of, there can be a lot of uh, similarities in each case, but I've been uh, in this business for about 19 years and there are still, every day I have a case that I have to ask a question on. So there, there are always different fact patterns. Every person is different. Everybody's needs are different. Really, and I got to tell you, a lot of the crimes are different too. You know, the way the crimes are handled can be different when, you know, depending on the DA, which law enforcement agency is taking it. So really, if, if they can get in with that local rape crisis center, that, that, that is where they're going to make their money um, or their, their local um, domestic violence shelter. Now, again, not everyone, not everyone in the country has got great resources. So, um, so, if you don't, so, if that, so if you don't gel with that particular agency, I would, I would just immediately drop them and go move on to the next one. That's a really great point because I, I really want to encourage listeners, like, if you're not getting the help you need, do not give up. You need to shop around for a therapist. You can shop around for an advocate. Like, you can be as loud as you need to be in order to get the help that you need. But, you know, not everyone is going to empathize with you right off the bat or, or get you the way you need to, to feel understood. But that doesn't mean that you're crazy or the problems with you, you know, it's just, we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different specialties sometimes. So, or life experience that gives us education on certain subjects. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more because it's just, it's just so dynamic, right? And you may catch like somebody who may be normally a victim, a good victim advocate, they're on a bad day and they're just not there or they're just not your person right like mm -hmm. they're good for a lot of other people just but just not not for you are you seeing any trends in certain crimes um, maybe as like technology expands or um, maybe as people become more outspoken for whatever reason yeah I would say that like your average perpetrator so to speak is increasingly honing their craft right so somebody who is a perpetrator is we really got to think of them that way as somebody who's, who's honing their craft and trying to, they're trying to do what they're trying to do. Right. When I, uh, when I train soldiers, I kind of give them a couple different trends. I see, I see sexual assault. I see male on male, male on female, female on female and female on male. And when I see uh, like, let's say a male on male, I'll see it in, in maybe like a, in a hazing environment kind of a thing, or I'll see it in a, maybe an intimate, uh, intimate partner situation. If when I see um, a male on female, a lot of times I see it in, uh, well, I guess since our target, uh, a lot of our listeners may be military spouses. What I, what I tend to see is that when, um, like, let's say that military spouse is married and she's married to a male, the male deploys, the, um, sh she's likely living in a military community um, or in a military neighborhood, and maybe her neighbors are um, also on active duty. Some of those men may be offering to help, like, cut her grass or do, you know, just do nice, like, what would appear to be nice things to help her while her spouse is deployed. Um, we, we, we are finding that that is, uh, there are some folks that are using that to groom the victim and then end up assaulting her. It is very common for me to have to redeploy or ask the command to redeploy a soldier because his spouse was assaulted while he was deployed downrange, and that's kind of the scenario that happens. I also see it where, like, a, um, like, like I'll have uh, two females who are friends. They will like one uh, female A. Let's say she's single. Female B is married. Um, we'll say we'll just say in this instance, married to a male. Female A goes over to female B's house. And they're like, you know, they're friends. They're going to um, watch some Netflix. They're going to just, you know, hang out. And they're probably going to drink. And she's probably going to crash at her friend's house because she's not, because she's responsible. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's going to go hang out with one of her girlfriends. She's going to maybe have a couple drinks. She's going to crash out on the couch because it's, it's a safe place, right? And so then what we'll find is then that husband will get up in the middle of the night and then assault female A, right? And so then in that instance, it just, the victim in this case, like, she, she tried to do I guess everything that she was supposed to do, so to speak. Um, you know, she was with uh, um, people that she trusted. She wasn't in a huge group. She was, she, you know, she may have been drinking, but she was in a safe place. And then and that kind of just, it throws her for a loop, right? Uh, you know, cause a lot of folks think that maybe it's just, you know, people out there being irresponsible and maybe that they deserved it or things like that. And nobody deserves it for one, but for two, you have a- Or, yeah, things like that. Like, yeah. Here's that culpability. 
or, or I think what makes people afraid to speak out. Do you ever see um, female to male, like females offending or, or assaulting males? Good question. We do, we do, and I'll see it in uh, kind of like one of t- one of two ways. Uh, one way will be where in that scenario that I just gave, like in that uh, where it was the two females, female A and female B, and then the husband um, assaulted it. So, like, let's say in this instance, female B wasn't culpable. Some in some instances, female B brought over her friend so that her husband could assault her and she could watch. Wow. Um, so, and then in other instances, we'll find um, where. Uh, like a female will assault a male kind of in a, in a, in a way that we may find that we may think is more common on a male assaulting a female, the female will uh, get the man drunk. So like, so we, so there's this, so we had this one case for, with this gentleman and he had gone out, he had gone over to his friend's house and he was drinking heavily, but he was staying at his friend's house and it was a party and all those things. And, you know, he again was, believing he was making smart decisions uh, and he was crashing at his friend's house because he had drank so much. His girlfriend had come with him to the party, but his girlfriend didn't want to stay. So she ended up leaving. So he gives her a hug and kiss goodbye. She leaves. He passes out on the couch. At some point in the night though, he wakes up and there's a, uh, a woman on top of him having sex with him. And so at this point he doesn't know what to do. Um, and he's also pretty drunk. And he, I mean, he's having like flashes of things going through, through his brain. He's like, dude, he knows he can't really hit her. But he does also, He's not really. He's having a, a very typical trauma response. He's kind of having like a freeze with a, with a few thoughts going through his head, and he eventually just passes back out. The next morning, he um, comes to and kind of puts pieces things together, and he uh, goes to talk to his friend to, be, to, to tell him what happened and be like, "What you know, like what what the heck happened? Like who was this person? I I I didn't want this, right? Like I'm in a relationship. This was not my partner. This is not who I'm with." Um, and then his friend gives him a high five and is like, Hey, great. You just got laid, you know? And then, and then, you know, he goes to talk to his girlfriend about it. Right. Cause he's still not okay with this. Right. Like he's like, so he goes to tell his girlfriend and is like, what, what is going on? What happened? What do I do? And then she breaks up with him because he cheated on her. Right. So this guy is just really left with this really just crappy story. Right. With no where to go and nobody that believes him. And, and really the system isn't designed to, to support him either, right? Because in a lot of jurisdictions, uh, a woman cannot rape a man, right? The laws are written in such a way that um, at best she can sexually assault him, but she certainly can't rape him. Wow. And so then, and so then what does he do, right? Who's he going to tell? Is he going to tell law enforcement that, you know, it's, so that's, that, so, you know, women certainly have got significant barriers to reporting, but men, have significant barriers as well. So one in every four women will be sexually assaulted by the time, just by the time they're 18, but one in every six men will as well. So we just really have this whole population, particularly in the military. So when I go in to train a group of, you know, if I've got 200 males in front of me there's and three females, there's going to be statistically far more males that have been sexually assaulted already than females. And when they report, women are already having a horrible, horrible time when they try to report, but my male clients are having a very, very, a whole different array of challenges, right? Yeah. If they can even speak out about it at all without being, you know, like, oh, now you're a pussy or you're a tattletale or whatever, all that kind of stuff, like that stigma applies. And, and you did mention this, but I think it's worth reiterating, like these, I don't know the exact statistics, but these are similar statistics to what it's like in civilian life as well. I mean, in my practice, generally, men will acknowledge if there had been some sexual trauma in their history, but most of the time they won't really bring it up. They'll be like, yeah, but I'm over that. So anyway, and that's only because it's part of my assessment that I specifically ask about it. And then it's kind of like that's over and, and brushed over. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it totally makes sense because it's that whole cultural perception like that men can't speak out about that kind of stuff because then they look like like you said they look like they're weak and i could totally see that in a military culture environment um that they would just rather keep it to themselves and never say it you know and even with that male on male um you know issue interactions and that kind of stuff i can really see how that could be a perception i mean i know we speak a lot or i do on female because of course i'm a female uh, military sexual trauma survivor but uh, it's so important to bring that up um, that males can also be victims as well. And it's okay 
to speak out about that and ask for help. Absolutely. And then I, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't bring in my like the LGBTQ community because then those folks, then they have even more barriers to reporting, right? Because what if they may not um, be out in their community yet? And then if they are assaulted, then they, they may have, you know, that, that's an additional barrier for them to reporting, right? And, and certainly the resources in the military aren't necessarily tailored for their needs. Absolutely. And I mean, it just, it was so recent. I don't even, I don't know the date off the top of my head, but that don't ask, don't tell um, law. I was in the service and that was, I got out in 2010 or 2011 and we still had that in place. I had, you know, individuals that were friends that couldn't even be themselves in the service because of that aspect, um, because they were afraid of being kicked out or in trouble for that. So definitely that's a really new thing that just happened too, for them to even be openly serving in the military. So yes, definitely. That puts an, an extra barrier to feeling safe to report. And if you did get put out under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, reach out to us and we will try to get your records um, updated. Um, yeah. It's, it's very, there, there are procedures in place now to, uh, you can apply with the Board of Military Corrections to get uh, your discharge upgraded if you were received anything other than an honorable discharge, if you were put out under Don't, don't Ask, Don't Tell. But it's still, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, like one of my peers was put out under don't, don't ask, don't tell, but he's just not, I can't, he's not ready, right? He's not ready to do that kind of, he's not ready to do the packet yet, you know? So, yeah, and, and, he, and he, he was put out like, you know, more than 10 years ago, God love him, but he's just, we all just got to do it at our, on our own time, you know? Absolutely. And that, that, that brings me to the, um, the other topic that I wanted you to touch on. I know that you do a lot of advocacy work for um, trauma survivors who were kicked out of the military under an under the uh, other than honorable discharge. You do a lot of work with those individuals, helping them um, overturn those, those discharges. Can you share more about that or how they can go about requesting that? Sure. So some folks um, get put out for reporting. So we've got, I uh, had a client who was assaulted like in the, she was assaulted in the eighties and they, they blamed her for it. And she got a, um, what did she get? Was it other than honorable or dishonorable? But it was certainly not an honorable discharge. Another young lady was assaulted in the 90s. And um, she not only, I mean, and, and she had, they both had significant injuries. Um, but the one in the 90s had significant in injuries. And they, uh, they, of course, blamed her for the assault. And they put her on additional duty. And they put her on additional duty with the perpetrator. It was, he was going to be the NCOIC, the, um, you know, the supervisor for her, for that, that extra duty. And God love her, she went AWOL, right? Like, she's like, not today, right? Um, so, I don't blame her. Yeah. And, and I guess, and I probably shouldn't say AWOL, because, I mean, she didn't, like, run away, but she certainly didn't show up. She stopped showing up to duty, you know. She'd show up to parts of the duty, just not that, that part, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so she was put out. And this, what this does is this... Um, it, it, it could bar them from like veterans benefits. And that's what it did uh, for both of these young ladies. So we had to apply with, uh, to the board of military corrections to update their records uh, and upgrade them. So that way they can just even be eligible for veterans benefits, um, which, you know, which I certainly take for granted, right? Like I've got my veterans benefits and they're fantastic, but um, I wasn't put out. I, I, I was lucky enough to have an honorable discharge. So that's one of the things that we'll do for these folks. And then we'll help them apply for their veterans benefits so that way they can get everything that they deserve. But what I will say, though, like with the um, Board of Military Corrections, is that they've really only put the processes and mechanisms in place in the last maybe five years for folks like that that, that were assaulted in this way in the 80s and 90s to, to get justice and to fix their records. So even if they had tried back then, or even in the early 2000s, it really wasn't until about, you know, 2015, 2016, that these mechanisms were in place to, um, to upgrade their records. So they've had to just basically carry this for decades. Oh. And, and, it's, and it's really, really sad. And really just in the last five years, uh, the Department of the Defense and the Board of Military Corrections has really just started to put in the mechanisms in place for folks to be able to upgrade their records to whereas before they weren't able to. So a lot of these folks, you know, so some of my clients who may have been assaulted literally decades ago, they could not have fixed it if they, if they had wanted to, right? Um, or the procedures in place were just so laborious that there was just no point in even trying. I will say that the DOD is identifying um, the, these issues and they are making changes. And I know that it can feel for like a lot of folks that it's just a really an uphill 
battle, but I would just encourage folks that are kind of like in the fight just to keep, keep going because we're, we're not only doing this for our, ourselves, but we're really doing it for the people that are coming behind us. So that way, hopefully they don't have to go through what we went through. And I, you know, I feel so awful for my clients, but I got to tell you, it's, it's really sweet for them when they finally do get the justice that they deserved. And some of the folks that are experiencing, we have a lot, I do have a lot of folks now that are experiencing retaliation for reporting even now, right? And um, the processes in place available to them aren't um, necessarily working. So like maybe they report to the inspector general or the office of special counsel or to, you know, offices like that to report the reprisal or retaliation. But for some of these folks, the inspector general may take two years to investigate their claim. And then what then, right? Like, so if they're going to, if they're being put out or retaliated against, um, that doesn't really help them (laughs) if the IG is taking so long to investigate. So just really for the folks that are in the fight, uh, we know you're in the fight. We know you're, you're hurting. If you're dissatisfied with how the army is handling your case, really just reach out to me, which is why we <laughs> at combat sexual assault.org. <laughs> uh, Cause that's all, that's all we do. Right. It's like, and we're totally going to leave your information <laughs> in the show notes so that everybody can reach you. But I did have, I wanted to, to make a note um, that also there are uh, mental health um, personality disorder. I don't know if you heard about those like from pe- previous. I don't know if they do it anymore. I know there was some sort of a new rule that said that mental health providers were no longer allowed to use personality disorders to discharge soldiers. But when I was in the service, I was actually threatened with a personality disorder when I a- attempted to request help or support um, mm-hmm. for the residual effects of my sexual trauma. Um, and, and after doing a lot of research on that, I saw that a lot of individuals who spoke out about sexual trauma administratively were put out um, for these personality disorders and personality disorder, if those are considered pre-existing conditions. And so if you're labeled as a pre-existing condition, the military can theoretically kind of kick you out and you don't get benefits like VA benefits for having a mental health um, condition. So they were kind of like kicking people out that way without actually saying this is just, this is PTSD from sexual trauma or whatever that, that may be. Um, so there may be some people who actually have a personality disorder discharge other than honorable or administrative discharge that also need support in trying to get those upgraded. And there was a, a young lady, her name was, um, her name is Airman Dawson. I don't know if you know that name. I'll have to put a link to her. She does a lot of advocacy work with personality disorder discharges because apparently she had a situation that happened to her. And so she does a lot of outreach and openly discusses her um, situation and she just recently got her discharge up, upgraded. So I'm gonna have to like reach out to her and see if she, we can put her information in the show notes as well for people who have that personality discharge um, that associated with their sexual assault. And also too, I wanted to note that because of all the discussions that we're having, I know Aaron and I had mentioned this in a previous episode. There has been an increase in reporting. So a lot of people who are being sexually assaulted in the military are feeling more open to talk about it and to disclose this information. But of course, on the other hand, there's been an increase in retaliation or there's been a high percentage of individuals who feel like they have been retaliated against or they had a negative um, experience after they reported. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, I know that they do have hardship transfers now. They did not have that available when I was in the service. Do you know anything about the hardship transfer? Yeah, they call them, uh, they call it an expedited transfer. So uh, folks that report a sexual assault are able to um, move to another installation. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll get with their victim advocate and their victim advocate will put in that paperwork for them. Um, they have to put in um, like a justification and then justification is the assault. And then they'll get the, they don't exactly get to pick their installation, but they'll kind of maybe put down um, maybe their top, two or three, you know, we encourage folks to pick a place where uh, their support system lies. So sometimes that may be where their family is. Sometimes it's not where their family is. Sometimes it's where their friends are, but it may be, or maybe it's a place that they lived before where they feel comfortable and safe. And the great thing about an expedited transfer is the command's got a, uh, there's some really strict timelines that they have to follow um, and they have to be able to respond to the victim very, very quickly. So, so then if they don't, that can cause a lot of problems for the command. So once that procedure is initiated, it can really move very, very quickly. The victim advocate will send that through their own channels outside of command and send it directly to HRC, Human Resources Command themselves, to, so that way it can kind of get them out faster. Now that isn't available to spouses, so that's, so that's just something to keep in mind. That doesn't necessarily mean it can't happen, 
but it, it's going to take some um, finagling by that victim advocate to really try to advocate for their client. I do have a lot of clients, though, that they don't want to move. They want the perp to move, right? Like they are happy in their job and they were like, no, I'm not leaving because I was assaulted, right? You're leaving. <laughs> um, and so then there isn't necessarily a process in place to ensure that that occurs. But again, that requires some, you know, some really effective advocacy. So I want to link that person up to a good local advocate to ensure like if they want to, a lot of people want to stay and do their job, you know? Um, and sometimes with the expedited transfer, that, that person, that victim maybe moved to a job that is not um, conducive to their career advancement, right? So they may be like a driver for the command sergeant major. So they're not really doing anything that's, you know, going to help them get promoted. Um, or I'll have a service member who may be um, slotted to deploy and she wants to deploy, right? She's like, send me on my deployment. I don't want to be stuck here because of this assault, you know, like, yeah, I reported it, but send me on my deployment. So we're able to do that for folks, but um, sometimes it takes some convincing. Yeah. One thing I wanted to highlight as well, um, as my experience as a military spouse, but I'm sure this happens for military members as well, because people tend to join young and they tend to marry young. When I left my ex and when I was I, I left from a um, station where I was living on base. And so, you know, as it is, it's kind of built to be its own little city, right? You have your, your gynecologist, your eye doctor, your everything, like all right there. So when I came back, um, I moved back to California. I didn't remember how to make a doctor's appointment as a civilian. Like a lot of my resources just kind of like fell flat because I didn't, any longer remember how to do those things as, as like a civilian person anymore. Um, and I'm sure that is the case with people who have been in the military since they were 18 or 19 or, you know, you hear about them never having put together a resume, um, you know, things like that. And so I just wanted to kind of get your feedback on that as well. You know, like knowing those resources and, and maybe ways besides hopefully our podcasts that can help educate people or, so particularly if they're transitioning, I would want, I would still, I would want to make sure that they're linked up with a victim advocate at their local, maybe rape crisis center or their domestic violence um, shelter, because what that person is going to do is they're going to help them make those appointments as they transition. So, and um, sometimes the military can kind of drop you like a hot potato when you, when you get out, right. when you transition. So that's, that's what I would encourage them to do. And they can still call the DOD safe helpline. Like I said, and those folks um, on that hotline, can offer both military and civilian resources. Um, but definitely getting that advocate because particularly after you experience trauma, everything can be very cloudy, right? And you're not just doing normal activities is hard, let alone anything else, anything regarding your recovery. You're not, you don't necessarily know what to ask or who to ask. Mm -hmm. So you don't even know what question to ask, you, you, you know? Um, so that's why the advocate is, is just so important because that advocate already knows what you're going through. They already know where they know where you're at and where you're going. So they're going to already line up the resources and then you, you just have the opportunity to choose whether or not you want them or not. Usually with my first responders that I see in, in uh, my practice, I suggest that they keep contact with civilian friends that they, they don't completely submerge themselves into the police department or the fire department or the military or whatever it is, what I have you, um, would you, do you think that that's good advice or do you see the benefit in that as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great advice. Cause it kind of can kind of be the bucket of cold water on you sometimes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, I think when it comes to, cause for me personally, that's a great advice. I, I, I completely agree. Um, but for me, I was overseas during a lot of my time. And so I lost touch with a lot of my civilian friends, so to speak. I kind of didn't have anybody else except for my military friends and then maybe my spouse, my military spouse friends that I had. Um, so people that are, some of the service members that are overseas, maybe finding different ways to stay connected to your civilian friends. Um, I know for me, I lost touch with them. But if I had tried a little harder, I probably could have stayed, you know, in touch with my friends. So that might be a really good idea for those of you who are overseas. 
And I want our listeners to absolutely know without a doubt, like I, I never want us to sound anti-military. I love my country. I love the military. I love everything about it. But like with everything, there needs to be balance, you know? And so if you find that you're losing connection to your family back home or people don't get you, or um, like we mentioned in previous episodes where war seems more familiar and more comfortable to you than your original home life, like these can be red flags to maybe create more balance in your life. Maybe you're a little too far one way or the other. Um, and so something to just like stop and check in with yourself and how you're doing. That's great way. advice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I did want to loop back because you, when you were talking about uh, personality disorders and, and um, reasons why soldiers get discharged, when I'm going through like a soldier's medical records, like let's say they reported the assault and they, they are actually presenting to their primary care provider for the assault, um, they may not actually put the assault in the records, right? They may put down personal problems. So that was one of my clients that they put in there, they have a personal problem or they have anxiety. But, but she went there to report an assault. So it's not always in the record, right? So, so it takes some, um, take somebody like myself going through it to kind of provide that clarity to them or to the Board of Military Corrections as we're trying to apply to get their records upgraded. Um, and you're right, it can absolutely be a barrier to reporting because a lot of folks, they may not want to report because one, they don't want that, and they may not want a misdiagnosis in their record, particularly like a personality disorder, like something that might put them out, but they also uh, may not want to lose like maybe their security clearance. Um, and they're worried about their command finding out. Um, maybe they've got suicidal ideations. They don't want to um, get admitted. So I, I overwhelmingly refer um, service members to civilian resources, civilian mental health providers. I, I rarely, I rarely recommend that they go on post. And not to knock the military so much because there are some really great uh, mental health providers in the military and that really are just passionate about their work and do a great job. But even for those folks, um, there's just not enough of them. So as I'm trying to get maybe those um, folks in with an appointment, they may have to wait weeks for an appointment. And then what, right? Like they need an appointment now um, and I can get them a civilian appointment pretty quick. And so that's the other great thing about the DOD Safe Helpline is you can actually call to get a civilian resource from them and they can help link you up. And then a lot of, and, um, there, there are a lot of uh, free or low cost options available to service members and veterans. So like particularly in our community, there's just all kinds. Like our Rape Crisis Center provides the services for free. And that's an also a great way for folks who maybe don't want their mental health records in their military records. They want to keep those separate. The VA actually offers a, a program uh, through what they call the Vet Center. So I refer a lot of folks to the Vet Center, which is also another great resource uh, for active duty and veterans. And th the other beautiful thing about that too is that they will they are not going to share those records with, with TRICARE, with your unit, and anyone. That stays completely separate. But when you get out and you're trying to apply for those, mil for those VA benefits, you got the records there. So that's a really fantastic uh, re resource to folks that's available to them now. Absolutely. Um, I think it's really important, like when we're looking at the case files, to recognize that there has been a shift in personality or a shift in change. Like, like I think um, for a lot of sexual assault survivors, maybe like they start getting in trouble more often or they start um, engaging in risky behaviors, like an uh, increase in alcohol assumption, consumption or something like that. So you can kind of pinpoint that and say, hmm, something changed here in this individual's records. Um, what happened, right? And Sometimes you'll find out that there was some sort of a traumatic experience or a sexual assault that they didn't report. And so I think a lot of um, sexual assault survivors that are trying to go back and get VA benefits for that, that's been a primary factor for them to be able to, you know, to prove that that happened. Because right. oftentimes they don't go to anyone and, and report it, like you said. So, yeah, that's yeah. really important to remember. I have a question going back, um, and it, it could be probably just a quick thing, but what exactly is an other than honorable discharge. I, I never understood that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm probably not the, I, I barely understand it myself. <laughs> it sounds like kind of the cop out. It's like, we just don't know how to classify this or we don't want to classify this. And maybe that's like Kim was saying, like things can be caught up under the guise of, well, this allegedly happened or. Yeah. It's like an umbrella term, I feel like, because there's dishonorable, there's honorable, and then there's like other than honorable, and it's like, well, you're and not there's, quite and there's general. Oh, and then there's general, yeah, and then there's another yeah. one. There's, that's a more umbrella term, too, because, yeah, there's definitely different levels. 
Yeah. yeah, and each of that has its own like requirements, right? Like to be put into each. Um, um, they're not supposed to just be willy-nilly about it. They've got to meet those requirements in order to put you into that category. And certainly, I would say now they're looking at it much more closely when they're putting folks out, and that it's not they're not just you know rushing. Most of the folks are getting honorable discharges nowadays, right? Um, I'm not seeing as many, my clients that were assaulted, maybe in the more, re, like, let's say like in the last 10 years, they're not having that issue in their records. They're having other kinds of issues. Um, right. Like they're being, they're being retaliated against, or maybe they are, they may be putting out under honorable conditions, but they're being put out. Like, let's say they were assaulted and then they, de- they, they perhaps maybe de- developed some maybe unhealthy coping mechanisms. Uh, maybe they started drinking, they get, a, they're maybe getting DUIs, things like that. Then they'll get put out of the military for a DUI, which is really, you know, if they're being retaliated against the workplace and they've been assaulted, then, you know, those are things as a command that I would encourage the command to take under consideration, right? Like this is not necessarily a broken soldier, right? We broke the soldier by allowing the assault to occur. Exactly. And one more thing I just want to throw in there that oftentimes when somebody reports a sexual assault and they have been drinking or maybe they're underage drinking or something like that, the command can um, command direct them to go to like an ASAP or alcohol substance abuse program. And then they could also be chaptered out for failure to attend or failure to comply with non-alcohol or no substances during that program. So that's like another way of kind of administratively victim punishing the victim in a way, especially when they're trying to cope with alcohol oftentimes because they're, you know, they have all that internalized trauma. So just one more thing to consider. Um, in the grand scheme of things as well. Right. And the, and the military has added um, a piece of the policy to where it says that the commander has the discretion to dispose of what they, what they, what they call that collateral misconduct. So like if somebody was even, you know, doing drugs or drink or, or underage drinking or engaging in any other kind of crime while, or when the assault occurred, it gives the the command, the opportunity to not prosecute that, right? But it, but again, it's up to the command to decide. I am so glad to have met you, Lindsay. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on our podcast. And I really hope that we can make, um, help, help people feel better and also just make our military and our first responders run better because I, for one, know that if you have a healthy home life, if you have a healthy personal life, it's going to make you that much better in your job as well. Absolutely. I mean, readiness is all about holistic readiness, I feel like. So we definitely have to take into consideration all those different aspects that make us who we are. Um, We're talking about readiness for our military. And definitely, I wanted to make sure that our listeners know that all of the resources that we talk about here, I will make sure that they were in our show notes so that you can find them. And also, you're able to locate Lindsay and her wonderful, amazing organization, um, because this has been a very insightful discussion. I feel like um, it's all about education. And if we educate ourselves and empower ourselves and knowing how to, you know, properly, you know, um, find the resources that we need, then of course, you know, we're just going to be that much better of a resource for others and for ourselves. Look how much growth has already come in the last few years. Like you were saying, um, Kim, was it 2010 you mentioned? And um, my incidents was in 2016. So, I mean, like there's already a lot of changes happening. And so that gives me a lot of hope for the future as well. Thank you. Thank you ladies for having me. You guys have been wonderful. Thanks for all the hard work that you guys do and for putting this together. It's really, I can only imagine how many people it's impacting. Thank you. We really appreciate you.